Good morning. Good morning, Jamie. Uh, Dad's away, as we like to say. <laughs> yeah. Guy is again spending some quality time with his grandchildren, which he deserves because he yes. helped in that one point six million dollars. Yes, he did for the bed and bread radiothon for the Salvation Army. What a what a great time we had on Friday! It was a great time. That was my first time doing it. Did and you enjoy it? I. I don't want to say it was fun because it's we're doing some important work. Of there, course, but it was it was sort of fun. Uh, yeah. All these people collectively trying to get to one goal, and I remember our first total was thirty eight thousand. Uh huh. Nick brings me a little post it note that the next total was like a hundred and thirty thousand, <laughs> and I like take my earphones off, turn off my mic. I go, this is this right? <laughs> this can't be right. These kind of jumps. It was amazing what yeah. the community did. Well, they're they're great, and the Salvation Army does such great work in the community and it's they're so deserving absolutely so that was great stuff on saturday nikki haley lost by 20 points to donald trump yeah uh, former uh, president donald trump solidified his position as the front runner of the republican presidential nomination by clinching victory in south carolina's primary saturday trump's sweeping triumph further uh narrows the options for his last major rival nikki haley who faces mounting pressure to reassess her campaign's viability, Trump's dominance in GOP nominating contests from Iowa to Nevada underscores the formidable hold on the party. The South Carolina win, particularly significant given Haley's ties to the state, bolstered Trump's confidence. At an election night event in Columbia, Trump celebrated the unprecedented unity within the Republican Party, flanked by influential figures like Governor Henry McMaster and Senator Tim Scott, a vocal Trump supporter and potential running mate. Despite the setback, though, Haley remains resolute, vowing to press on with her bid for the presidency. I'm going to count it. I know 40% is not 50%. But I also know 40% is not some tiny group. In the next 10 days, another 21 states and territories will speak. They have the right to a real choice. Not a Soviet-style election with only one candidate. Her defiant stance sets the stage for a contentious battle as the GOP heads to Michigan for the next primary. That is tomorrow with Super Tuesday looming. Bad news for Nikki, though. The political network financed by billionaire Charles Koch announced Sunday that it will no longer spend funds to support Nikki Haley's presidential bid. That's a blow. That's a big blow. Uh, They don't think there's a meaningful difference for her in the race. And they said, you know, now they're going to focus on ballot stuff because, you know, people see the writing on the wall that Nikki doesn't have a path. Right. But she's saying Donald Trump can't win a general election, in her opinion. Because 40% are supporting her. Yeah. So we'll have to see what Nikki Haley does in the future. But she's vowing to stay through Super Tuesday. So then that begs the question, what happens here in Michigan? And Governor Gretchen Whitmer was all over TV. Yeah, she was. Um, She was on TV and she was also uh, the subject of a New York Times article. Uh, Michigan Governor Whitmer finding herself navigating choppy waters as she faces backlash over her response to the Israeli-Hamas conflict, initially slated to speak at a celebratory event in Dearborn honoring a health clinic founded by Muslim leaders. Whitmer's plans were derailed by mounting controversy. Her statements during the conflict left both Jewish and Arab-American communities displeased. A subsequent announcement of her appearance in Dearborn sparked uh, outrage on social media. 
with some labeling her as unwelcome and predominantly Arab Americans in the predominantly Arab American city. Activists accuse her of supporting genocide, forcing Whitmer to cancel her speech, a move she says she later regretted. Now, as Whitmer grapples with the political firestorm, her role as President Bush's President Biden's chief ambassador to Michigan adds another layer of complexity with Arab Americans expressing frustration over Biden's stance on Israel and requesting voters to vote uncommitted in tomorrow's presidential primary. The governor finds herself in a precarious position striving to mend fractured alliances while facing electoral uncertainties. The governor said basically she's she's not aware of what's going to happen tomorrow when it comes to the uncommitted vote. She's just hoping that people exercise their vote and vote for a person and not for a, you know, uh, uh, uncommitted because she says when you vote uncommitted, that means you're voting for Donald Trump and we can't have Donald Trump as uh, a president once again. Well, that's a good segue into what's going on with Israel and Hamas, because that is why a lot of people are planning to vote uncommitted. They don't appreciate what's going on in Israel and the stance from the American government. Mm-hmm. Um, the situation in Gaza is absolutely dire famine, disease. Uh, the World Food Program's regional director said that some days no food enters the war ravaged enclave. There are reports that, you know, babies are dying of, uh, you know, women who are pregnant trying to have babies in these hospitals with no fuel. It's just a desperate, dire situation in Gaza. Now, Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said he will convene his cabinet early this week to approve the operational plans for action in Rafah. Now, that apparently would include the evacuation of civilians. We're talking about 1.5 million people taking refuge in Rafah. And the U.S. has said they cannot support an Israeli ground offensive there without a credible plan for their protection. Meanwhile, Qatar will host mediated talks between Hamas and Israel in Cairo this week. An Israeli official told NBC News that there was some progress on ceasefire negotiations with U.S., Israeli, Qatari and Egyptian officials in Paris. However, Hamas said that Netanyahu aborts all attempts to make progress in negotiations. Netanyahu was on CBS Face the Nation talking about what Hamas is asking for. Unless we have total victory, we can't have peace. We can't leave Hamas in place. We can't leave a quarter of Hamas uh, battalions in uh, Rafah and say, well, that's that's fine. So he's saying Hamas, it has to be total destruction of Hamas. And until that happens, he's not giving up. And, you know, the U.S. officials were on the Sunday morning shows saying, no, we have not seen a plan for evacuation of Rafah and and this things like that. So it's it's a tough situation there. And now it seems like it's turning a little bit with U.S. support. And uh, with the other war going on, Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky revealing yesterday that 31,000 Ukrainian soldiers have lost their lives since Russia's full-scale invasion two years ago, contradicting lower estimates from Russian President Vladimir Putin's government. Zelensky emphasizing the significance of each loss at the Ukraine uh, year 2024 forum in Kiev. Uh, while he didn't disclose figures for wounded or missing troops, Zelensky noted the loss of tens of thousands of civilians in occupied areas, cautioning against definitive numbers until the conflict concludes. So, you know, they're still looking for funds as well from the United States to continue their battle against Russia. Yeah. And there were, again, on the Sunday morning shows, a lot of lawmakers saying, you know, at least Republicans, we're not going to support any Ukraine aid unless there's border funding. And so that's that old chestnut. (laughs) Uh, We're going to talk with the Ukrainian American Civic Committee of Metro Detroit, a spokesman, the vice president 
uh, at 635 to talk more about sort of the impact here at home with the Ukrainian uh, aid sort of held up in Congress. Finally, the IV- it's been a week since the yes. Alabama IVF ruling that frozen embryos are children. And it's kind of taken a week for some lawmakers to figure out what they want to do. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the Republicans are saying, I support IVF, including Donald Trump on Friday, said he supports in that, that the Alabama lawmakers should act to protect it. OK, what does that mean? Yeah, because he has boasted that he put three Supreme Court justices there. This has created this atmosphere to which this the Alabama Supreme Court cited the the Dobbs situation, mm-hmm. which is why we are in this point to begin with. But uh, so a lot of Republicans saying I support it. Alyssa Slotkin tweeted out um, to Mike Rogers saying, oh, really, you support it? Well, you co-sponsored four bills that created that would create a similar situation on the national level. So a lot of discussion there. We can get into that a little bit more. But yeah. you know where my heart is. Oh, I know where your heart is. And, and I and I understand. And, um, you know, I think uh, as far as Alabama is concerned, I think they're now looking for the legislature in Alabama to codify something uh, in law that will, you know, uh, make IVF. Um, you know, the, the that won't take away from what the uh, Alabama state Supreme Court did. Sure. But meanwhile, there are women and families who spent thousands and thousands of dollars because they want to have a family. They've gone through the shots. Their body is ready for the procedure and it's halted. Yeah. And they've spent a lot of money, too. I mean, some some families have really, you know, spent a lot and, you know, their savings are gone. But they want to start a family. They want a family. To me, that's pro-life. And a lot more people are personally affected by IVF and fertility treatments than possibly abortion. Mm -hmm. And I think this is why this topic has gotten so much traction over this last week. We'll wait and see. Um, Coming up, though, we'll come back to home and everything going on here in Detroit with Crane's Detroit business. I mean, what's going on in Lansing? Do we need a better transit situation? And much more to talk about here on JR Morning. That's next. It is Monday, and it's time to check in, as we do every Monday, with the folks at Crane's Detroit Business to see what their top stories are that they're covering this weekend. The Crane's Detroit interview brought to you by the Michigan Economic Development Corporation. Learn more at michiganbusiness.org. Joining us on the JR Morning Live line, as always, is our friend Mike Lee, managing editor of Crane's Detroit Business. Mike, good morning. Good morning, Lloyd. How are you? I'm doing well. So they're getting together today, this transit caucus, to talk about public transportation, something uh, that uh, a lot of states, you know, who have public transportation, they tend to bring in more young people. We want to bring in more young people, and uh, we need to get our transportation taken care of. Yes, this is the early stages of of something new in Lansing. Uh, Quite a few uh, legislators have gotten together like you said, they're forming a transit caucus to discuss ways to improve uh, public transportation in Michigan. Uh, it's a pretty big group of lawmakers, uh, about four dozen of them, which is like 40% of the total in Lansing are, are taking part in this. They are holding their first, uh, their first caucus meeting this week to, uh, to, to start spinning up this effort. Uh, it's, a, it's a heavily Democratic group, but there are Republicans in the group as well. Um, and, and transit is really seen, you know, as, as, a, as, a, as a way to, to, to lure and keep young people in Michigan as part of the, it was heavily highlighted in the, uh, the report from the Governor's Commission on Population as, as, as something that, that young people really value. Uh, they don't necessarily want to be forced to own cars to get around town and get mm-hmm. to work. 
So uh, this is this is seen as something that's important now. Michigan's history with with transit, especially Southeast Michigan, is as we know not great. Um, our our transportation system in in Metro Detroit has been fractured for for, for many years. Separate systems. Uh, it's a, it's more coordinated now than it has been at times in the past. But this is a decades long effort, obviously. Uh, various efforts to to really create a true regional system that's 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 funded properly have have failed for one reason or another. Uh, so we'll see if this 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 new effort from uh, from from Lansing uh, makes any difference. Mike, I think about this all the time. A train to the airport would be amazing. How about a train up north? I'll, they should go. call you, me for ideas. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, 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 fantasy Rail Networks are one of my favorite games to play. <laughs> uh, right, figuring fair. out how to pay for it, how, figuring out how to pay for it is the uh, is the trick. Right. Uh, on the EV front, something we talk about a lot on this show, uh, a Silicon Valley startup is coming to Metro Detroit. Yeah, this is a, a, a EV company uh, this that's uh, located in California called Lucid Motors. Uh, they've got a new model that they're 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 getting ready to uh, to to start selling, but it, it appears that they they need some of Metro Detroit's talent, automotive engineering talent, especially to uh, to to continue to grow. Um, they're going to open a ten million dollar engineering hub uh, in Metro Detroit that will that will employ two hundred and sixty people. Uh, it's supposed to go tomorrow to the Michigan Strategic Fund to to approve some some tax breaks. Is our understanding uh, interesting company? It's one of you know a number of of, of uh, pure play EV companies that are you know trying to create alternatives to Tesla and, and compete in in what's become a pretty tight market. Uh, this company's had a rough go of late, like many of those companies, um, but uh, they still have capital to invest in in this sort of engineering center. So we'll we'll see how they do. Um, we saw some layoffs from. For example, uh, Rivian, another EV EV maker, uh, last week because they are the sales have not grown as quickly as they would like. So, uh, but this, you know, to me, this is a sign that you know, if you need automotive engineers, you're still coming to to Metro Detroit, which is uh, is is one of our great strengths. And also, uh, Mike, there's uh, some changes to, to some laws when it comes to mobile home parks. What are these changes about? Yeah, uh, Democrats in Lansing are making another move on, on housing. Really, uh, they're they're considering bills, debating bills on uh, regulating mobile home parks, especially uh, especially in terms of what kind of rent uh, the owners can charge for the lots in those parks. The background here is that uh, investment companies, private equity, have been buying up mobile home parks. They see them as a really good investment because they can immediately jack up the lot rent. Uh, for the residents there, since mobile home residents tend to be lower income, that can create problems for those residents. Mm-hmm. So the Democrat, the, the, excuse me, the Democratic bills, you know, actually include a form of rent control that would limit uh, rent increases to the rate of inflation. There are some exceptions to that in the bills, uh, but but generally that's that's what they're looking to do. Uh, mobile home owners are obviously pushing back really hard on this and. It, it's always true that, you know, if you if you regulate what someone can make from 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 an investment like this, you will get less of that investment. And they say if you need more housing, which I think most folks agree that we we by and large do, especially affordable housing, uh, 
that putting those sorts of limits in place isn't going to get you more of it. So uh, it'll be interesting debate. This is not a done deal yet, but uh, it is it is something that the, the Democrats are looking at. Finally, Mike, I mean, spring is coming. There's the boat show happening out on the west side of the state. And you guys looked at some trends and what's hot right now. Absolutely. Our, uh, our, our friends at Crane's Grand Rapids business, uh, last week was the Grand Rapids boat show and uh, took a tour around there and looked at some of the trends. The, the boating industry is very, very focused on uh, getting uh, millennials, especially out onto the water and into boats. Uh, one, of, one of the trends is uh, pontoon boats are apparently becoming Well, becoming they're easier to now. drive. They are, they? yeah. My cousin yeah, has a pontoon boat. She loves it. Yeah, but they're 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 low in cost. Uh, they're versatile. There's a lot of different things you can do on them. So you know they're seen as a way to get millennials who, you know, it, 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 to become outdoor water enthusiasts who might you know they they're not going to be able to afford a you know a 35 foot, whatever sort of boat. I'm not a boater, um, but they're uh, they're uh, you know it's it, it's it's seen as an entry level. The other thing that that was at the boat show that I thought was just awesome was this uh, this amphibious yacht called an iguana which literally has retractable tank treads on the bottom of it so that you can drive your boat right up onto the beach and uh and and, and i well, thought that was a pretty extraordinary thing that would be a lot easier for getting the boat in and out <laughs> yeah definitely well, absolutely my- it, it it's uh but anyway i made, made me look forward to summer yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, we have so many boaters here in Michigan, uh, and so uh, a lot of people are looking forward to that and what's going on at that boat show. Mike Lee, Managing Editor of Crane's Detroit Business, always a pleasure to talk with you. Thanks. And uh, coming up at uh, 635, you know, hundreds of Ukrainians rallied downtown the day after the two-year anniversary of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We'll talk more about that coming up at 635. Also, uh, later on, we'll be talking with Major Tony Durrell from the uh, Salvation Army about the uh, Radiothon we took part in on last Friday. That's all coming up, and that will be at 749 here as JR Morning continues. Russia's invasion of Ukraine stretches now into its third year after the two-year anniversary passed this weekend. Some 31,000 Ukrainian soldiers have been killed since Russia's invasion began. That's according to President Volodymyr Zelensky. Uh, estimates by U.S. officials actually have that much higher. Uh, then there's the issue of Ukraine stalled in Congress. Let's bring in Elena Daniel Luke, vice president of the Ukrainian American Civic Committee of Metro Detroit. Good morning, Elena. Um, you know, we talk about the, the soldiers, but of course, there's the, the toll on the regular citizens of Ukraine, the displacement of people. And I'm sure there are Metro Detroiters with family members there. Yes, you're right. And almost every American living here in, in Michigan has a family member, has a relative, has a prior families who are suffering right now from causes of, Ukra- causes of the war uh, in Ukraine. And as you know, we have also a lot of refugee influx in Michigan, and a lot of families are sponsors and hosting them here. And so with this two-year conflict ongoing, no end in sight, what does that mean? Are our family members here sending anything back to the, the home country? You know, how has it been? 
I also want to bring to your attention that conflict is happening for the last 10 years. And since 2014, invasion Russia and t- taking Crimea and mm-hmm. eastern parts of Ukraine. And two years, it's a full-scale war of Russia to, uh, on Ukraine. And for all those times, I am here for 20 years. And for all these times, Ukrainians are supporting and trying just to protect Ukraine as much as possible. And right now, for the last two years, every day for us, it's a day looking forward how we could protect and save Ukraine, how we could just stop Ukraine suffering from it. And that's an enormous stress for all families. It's an enormous stress for all Ukrainians. And right now, and it's also we are bearing a lot of financial because we are trying just to support as much as possible and also suffering. Every single day we waking up and every single day we just looking for a hope how we could save Ukraine, how what we can do here to to make like needle move to save Ukraine and just and make a peace and stop this senseless war. And Elena, the 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 uh, aid for Ukraine, U.S. aid for Ukraine is is imperative because, from what I understand, a lot of the um, um, soldiers there are having to ration uh, their ammunition. Exactly what has happened since last uh, October, as you know, uh, when package was bundled with Ukraine with United States security border, and that's a larger problem right now. We couldn't pass. Here, support and support for uh, for security aid for Ukraine, and for me as Ukrainian American uh, voter, um, I it's very hard just to understand how because it's a that's what we are thinking. It's a national security, U.S. national security, and national security has to do nothing with this partisan politics, and we couldn't be divided and like sacrifice. United States national security. So, and what happens with this aid, because it's a bargaining point right now for last 90 days, it's Ukraine is stripped and soldiers are dying. And we have to, and Ukrainians have to sacrifice more and more their life to protect, uh, to protect Ukraine. And right now we have, again, we have to do everything in what, in our capacity to how just to convince and how just to bring all necessary information and understanding that protecting Ukraine is a vital, important decision. And here it shouldn't be this point for by, for partisan politics. President Joe Biden is convening the top four congressional leaders Tuesday at the White House, trying to put pressure on lawmakers to pass additional funding to Ukraine um, ahead of this partial government shutdown. But Elena, there was a rally for your congressman correct yes we have a we have a congressman john james and his congressman where most ukrainians in southeastern michigan are located it's his district and we want we we ask him to hear our voices we understand that um, it's a lot of politics and he is uh, in he his election and he is supported by donald trump so uh, his decisions, he was supporting Ukraine, and he was making, um, we met with him on December 20th, we met with 25 leaders from Ukrainian community, we brought for him packages, and we uh, answered all, on questions what he had uh, regarding uh, uh, regarding um, transparency, 
for uh, spending regarding uh, stolen kids problem, regarding refugees program in his district, and how he could work with, with local Ukrainians. But as you can see from his uh, from his decisions for uh, for Ukrainian aid and from security aid, he's or missing those important uh, important decisions in a. Um, in, a, in, a, in a Congress, or he is not voting. So we try to ask him to rethink his position and support Ukrainians and support Ukraine. Uh, also, it's very, then shows that we, like the most Ukrainians, we are his voters. And we believe that his decision would help, uh, would help, would help Ukraine. And also just unite his um his his partners and just make it the make a right choice to 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 protect and protect us because also for all this aid for transparency uh, and security questions uh, the most money is a, probably the most transparent transa transactions to ukraine and the most money actually stays in us to support ukraine, united states businesses specifically in his district to produce supplies like what is needed right now for Ukraine. Uh, Elena, have, have the group, have you guys reached out to the congressman? Have you tried to reach him through phones, email, any, any type of way? Yes. Uh, we are calling every day. We uh, are also leaving messages and we are tracking all events which are right now going in a Senate and now uh, in the House because it's very important to voice, to bring our voices and show our support and also and we are and our concerns. Mm -hmm. So also we met with him personally and he was very welcoming uh, on December December 20th. Um, he, we had only 15 minutes and we spent one hour with him. We were able to uh, brought the message, we were able to convey and talk to him and I was very impressed. Um, he he was voicing his support, but he also was voicing that um, problems, uh, what he is envisioning, and his concerns. Uh -huh. So that's that's a meeting protest. It's um, it's our our voice and showing that we need his support right now. We need his understanding, and we will be not stay, staying silent if we see that what is happened. So we will bring our voices. Just briefly, Elena, there are people that say, well, we need to protect our own borders and not send money to Ukraine. Talk to those people. Give the counter argument. I want to say that our borders are very important. And the aid, if we, and we have to work together to make what is the best for United States citizens. But we also have to understand that, that behind uh, what's happening with our borders is Putin also. Because there is a point as weaponized refugees and everything would happen with Hamas. And as also you know that Putin's, Putin's regime trained Hamas, that also people leaving their countries because something happened in their countries, they couldn't leave here. So by, by politics, by uh, international decisions, and now showing that we couldn't protect in Ukraine, Putin will moving more closer, taking Europe and threatening Europe with uh, with weapons so ukraine right now standing on a like, protecting all democracies that's what mm -hmm. we can see so and that's why it's important to understand more global problems and if united states will not 
in the world will not save Ukraine right now, protect and keep sovereignty and democracy, this would be larger over shifting. And border policy, what's happening right now in the United States, probably would be suffering much more. And this problem would be for us much more harder than right now we could just restore democracy, help protect Ukraine, right. support, like, just in, show Russia that Russia couldn't do anything what they want with the world. Right. So your yours is the fight for democracy, democracy, you believe. And so you will continue uh, voicing your opinions to your congressman. Elena Daniel Luke, vice president of the Ukrainian American Civic Committee of Metro Detroit. Thank you for your time and for your opinions this morning. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. And please support Ukraine. Thank you. And Slava Ukraini. Thank you so much. And coming up on JR Morning at 649, a breakthrough for the snack food industry, courtesy of Michigan State University. Ion Engineering, brought to you by Tajan Automotive Technologies, the formula for better mobility. Automakers and electric vehicle charging companies are facing widespread and justified cynicism about the state of America's EV charging infrastructure. In response, the industry is vowing to collaborate more and quickly to fix the broken system. Industry leaders spoke at a session of SAE International's 2024 Government and Industry Meeting in the nation's capital. The problems are real. Up to 30% of public chargers are not working at any given time. And since there aren't many to begin with, that puts EV drivers on edge as they travel, requiring them to rely on luck to find a working charger. Many of the speakers said it's urgent that the current chaotic payment system, caused for many charging failures, give way to so-called plug-and-charge simplicity. But it's a long road to the goal stated by Electrify America's Emily Durham, who said the charging experience should be better than the gas station experience. For SAE International, I'm Chris Klontz, and that's an eye on engineering. Welcome back. Um, this is very exciting news, Lloyd. A breakthrough for yes. the snack food industry. Bring Always, it. Even though I probably don't need any snacks, right? <laughs> Me or I'm actually guy on a diet guy. right now, yeah, but when I'm us. not, I can't wait for this. David Dalchus, professor in the Department of Plant, Soil, and Microbial Sciences at Michigan State University, is with us. He's also the director of the MSU Potato Breeding and Genetics Program. Good morning, David. Good morning, Jamie. So we love an, a breakthrough in the snack food industry. Tell me what you guys are working on. Well, um, at Michigan State University, we consider potato one of the important uh, crops in the state. And so we uh, conduct research in that area to try to help the potato industry. Okay. And, uh, so, yeah. So, um, so one of the areas of um, importance is, is that the Michigan actually is the number one state for producing potatoes that are used for making potato chips. Oh. And so delving into that area is is, is important. And um, so if you want to have potato chips all year round, you re- need to have potatoes that, that they can supply the processors year round. And and so that requires storing the potatoes from October all the way as far as they can into the um, into the next season. And so uh, what we've been tr- able to do is um, is how do we say it, um, manip- manipulate the genes in the potato that uh, that allow it to, to not convert 
sucrose to glucose and fructose. It's glucose and, and fructose that cause the browning in potato chips. And so if we can stop that, we can then extend the storage of the potatoes. Okay, so this is about storage and being able to have the product year-round. And from what Correct. we have in front of us, turning off a genetic switch that spurs potatoes to convert starches to sugars at low temperatures. Very interesting. Right. Yeah, so um, so if you, um, how would you say it? If you want to have potatoes all the way till the spring, you need to be able to store them. Otherwise, you have to maybe chuck them up all the way from Florida or, you know, from the south. Mm -hmm. Which is, you know, which is costly and um, and and kind of risky because you don't know the weather and all that. So the longer we can store them, you know, the better off the processors are in having a, a reliable supply of, of of potatoes to make good potato chips. So um, uh, explain the the current practice of of soaking potato tubers before frying and it affects the taste and cost of the potato chip production and how your discovery offers a, a different solution. Well, I I would say that the 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 soaking isn't isn't as much the big deal as the just that the potatoes um, when they're um, you know s stored too cold um, they may they then produce too much what we call the reducing sugars uh -huh. and so the potatoes are sliced kind of into a into a liquid and so then they that um, you know that liquid may remove a little bit of the sugars um, and some of the starches. But uh, but really, you know, you're, um, what we just want to do is is um, prevent those uh, conversion from the sucrose to the glucose and fructose, and that's what this gene that that um, uh, we focused on makes the big difference. In that there's this key gene, or we can say even like a switch that that we can manipulate, and so um, what we can do now in the future is. Um, focus on on this gene and we can use uh, gene editing potentially to um, cor make it so that other potato varieties can store longer um, and supply us with with good uh, potatoes for potato chips could this extend to other food foods so we could store other foods longer hmm well it has a lot to do with the you know with the fry process so um, if there's something where something that is um, fried and turns brown, this this may be something that could lead lead uh, lead to something better. But I I think that um, you know the the key in this from a more basic science perspective is that there's this um, there's this important gene and right within the gene there's a, a section that allows us to change the expression of that gene so that we um, we can. Uh, use it to our favor. How's that? I think it's interesting that, that you, you found this gene that can change an industry, but that's what happens over at MSU, just lots of research <laughs> and uh, lots of good things. Yeah. Well, first of all, um, so I'm on the, on the applied side of things. My colleague, Jiming Jiang, is the, was really the lead researcher on this project. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm, I'm speaking for our, our team here. And so he... Uh, so he's actually what I call, you know, a great scientist, and he's there in in the lab um, studying uh, the potato. And so we we do some lab work here at MSU, and we connect with um, with uh, Jiming there, 
and and take what his findings are and translate it into something that's valuable to the industry. Wow, uh, this this is you know how do you anticipate this the the breakthrough really impacting potato farmers and and the manufacturers? Of yeah, how snack far foods? are we from the science lab yes. to the to the industry? Okay, so uh, so things uh, things are changing in the world with this uh, gene editing technology. We can take current varieties and potentially uh, go in there and explore whether we can make that change and improve some of our current varieties. So, uh, so that could happen in a few years. And also, the, the government uh, feels that gene editing is a safe technology so that we can um, you know, create these plants, go to the federal government and say, um, do you agree that this is safe? And they'll say, we expect them to say yes, and then we can get those to the farmers. Excellent. Do you need taste testers? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I will say that, you know, um, being the potato breeder here at the university, we do a lot of um, experimental potato chips. And when you can make fresh potato chips and hand them out to people, you make friends immediately. Oh, Especially college students. I yes. <laughs> David Dalchus, professor in the Department of Plant, Soil, and Microbial Sciences at Michigan State University. Great work. Well, thank you. We have the day's headlines coming, and there are a lot, Lloyd. Yes, it is. Coming up next on JR Morning. Good morning, everyone. It it's is a Monday. beautiful morning in downtown Detroit. Look at the skyline. I know. It and looks the, good. You know, Mondays are tough, but when we look out to that, it's not so bad. And what, high today around 55? We're going to get to 60? Oh, today at 9? It's well, it's to... all talk at 9 a.m., but <laughs> we're right. still here at 7.05. <laughs> exactly. You got the backup in. You guys are going to have to play above yourselves today. <laughs> okay. We're good. Um, well, the big news over the weekend, Lloyd, of course, was Nikki Haley's historic loss. Yeah, former President uh, Donald Trump solidifying his position as the frontrunner of the Republican presidential nomination by clinching victory in South Carolina's primary on Saturday. Trump's sweeping triumph further narrows the options for his last major rival, Nikki Haley, who faces some mounting pressure to reassess her campaign's viability. Despite the setback, Haley remains resolute, vowing to press on with her bid for the presidency. I'm going to count it. I know 40% is not 50%. But I also know 40% is not some tiny group. In the next 10 days, another 21 states and territories will speak. They have the right to a real choice. Not a Soviet-style election with only one candidate. Her defiant stance sets the stage for a contentious battle as the GOP heads to Michigan for the next primary tomorrow. Super Tuesday looming. Trump aims to further solidify his nomination while Haley's team insists on forging ahead despite the odds. And when you talk about that, funding is some odds for Nikki Haley. Yeah, I mean, when you lose by 20 points in your home state, then the political network financed largely by billionaire Charles Koch announced Sunday that it will no longer spend funds to support Nikki Haley's presidential bid. The group no longer believes it can make a meaningful difference for her in the race. That's according to senior advisor Emily Seidel. Instead, Americans for Prosperity Action will focus its resources down the ballot on House and Senate races. Although they say we support Nikki, we you know hope she continues on if she wants to, but it's just not going to come from money from them. 
Well, the uh, New York Times uh, wrote a piece on the governor, Governor Whitmer, and uh, the governor finding herself uh, navigating, according to the Times, some choppy waters as she faces backlash over her response to the Israel-Hamas conflict. Initially slated to speak at a celebratory event in Dearborn honoring a health clinic founded by Muslim leaders, Whitmer's plans were derailed by this controversy. Her statements during the conflict left both Jewish and Arab-American communities displeased. A subsequent announcement of her appearance in Dearborn sparked outrage on social media with some labeling her as unwelcome in the predominantly Arab-American city. Activists accused her of supporting genocide, forcing Whitmer to cancel her speech, a move which she later regretted. Now, as she grapples with this political firestorm, her role as President Biden's chief ambassador to Michigan adds another layer of complexity with Arab-Americans expressing frustration over Biden's stands on Israel and requesting voters to vote uncommitted in tomorrow's presidential primary. The governor finds herself in a precarious position, striving to mend fractured alliances while facing electoral uncertainties. We're having we're having issues again with the uh, with my sound, but basically she is saying that uh, she doesn't know what's going to happen tomorrow. She's hoping that people will vote for a person, vote for her person, which is uh, President Biden, and not uncommitted because voting uncommitted means you are voting for Donald Trump. And despite her popularity among moderate voters and suburbanites, uh, Jamie uh, Whitmer's ability to reconcile these factions within the Democratic Party, well, that kind of remains uncertain. Yeah, I mean, the part of that piece, it's like, can she deliver Michigan for Biden? And it's it's unclear. It is. As the uh, general election comes um, barreling toward and she us. She keeps saying we have nine months, you know, we still have nine months, but still. Right. You know, it's a lot of work to do. Another issue everyone is talking about is, you know, we're a week out from the Alabama Supreme Court declaring that frozen embryos produced for in vitro fertilization were people with legal rights, which completely upended fertility care in that state, halted it, paused it. And so now the ruling is reverberating nationally. And uh, President Trump said on Friday that he supports IVF and that Alabama lawmakers should act to protect it. And the executive director of the National Republican Senatorial Committee of the Senate campaign arms of the Republicans said the party's candidates should, quote, align with the public's overwhelming support for IVF. Well, Mike Rogers tweeted this weekend, quote, IVF has been critical to helping Americans grow their families and realize the blessing of life and parenthood. Hello, that happened in my house. I find it a miracle. Mm -hmm. And he said, I oppose any and all efforts to restrict access to IVF, period. But then Alyssa Slotkin tweeted at him and said, in your 14 years in Congress, you co-sponsored four bills, the last one with Jim Jordan in 2013, that would have the same effect as the Alabama Supreme Court IVF ruling, making it impossible for millions of couples to have a family. So this fight continues. And I know that this is impacting a lot of people. One in six people... Um, have problems with fertility. Yeah. And a lot of people use IVF. A lot of people I know, and I know that they're fired up about this, Lloyd. And the people that, you know, when you go to these IVF clinics, these people all want families. Who's more pro-life than a couple who've been years, has been struggling, put their life savings into this, who injects yourself? I injected myself every single day to have a baby. Wow. This is what you want. And then for someone to say you can't do it is devastating. Well, speaking of babies, uh, that Amber Alert that everyone uh, received yesterday for three-year-old Kamani King, uh, she was found alive by Detroit police uh, yesterday morning, so she's fine. King was discovered in a black 
Chrysler 300, which had been stolen from the 15400 block of Schoolcraft late Saturday night. The prompt response from law enforcement and the community contributed to us getting her back safe. That's according to Detroit police. While King is now in the care of medical personnel, the investigation continues. The suspect who uh, was in that stolen uh, black Chrysler uh, 300 is still at large. Detroit police department's organized crime division is handling uh, the uh, case and they're urging anyone with information to contact crime stoppers at 1-800-SPEAK-UP or Detroit Rewards TV. And just briefly, the Red Wings are so hot right now. And Patrick Kane in Chicago yesterday for the first time, except wearing a winged wheel jersey. Uh, You know, he spent 16 years or or so in Chicago, and so they did a video montage for him. They also retired Chris Chelios' number seven jersey, and Chris said, just don't upstage me, Kaner. You know, you're one of the greatest American-born players, but don't upstage me. Well, then in overtime, 143 of overtime, Patrick Kane did upstage Chelios. Look out here! Look at this! Wide Look at this! Cut center ice! It's Patrick Kane in Chicago! Oh, oh my God! Kane with the overtime winner! The Red Wings win it three to two! The story is complete on Kane's return to Chicago! Hello. I mean, how I storybook is that? The that. Red Wings win in overtime. It was a. Um, a breakaway for Kane, and he wins it for the Red Wings in overtime. So how about that? Red Wings so hot right now and in the playoffs if they started right now. Coming up on JR Morning, we're going to talk about the measles outbreak nationally and what's going on here in our state. That's at 719, and then more political talk at 735. But right now, it's time for WJR's Business Beat, brought to you by Shelving.com. We rack your world Here's Jeff Sloan, founder and CEO of Startup Nation, to spotlight the entrepreneurial tech and startup community on WJR. Good morning, Guy, Lloyd, Jamie. We are all well aware of how the pandemic hit the restaurant industry hard. And of course, its impact continues to linger today. However, things are looking up and 2024 is expected to be a much better year for this industry sector. That from the National Restaurant Association State of the Restaurant Industry Report. Of course, the restaurant sector is an important one to all of us in that it provides unique lifestyle experiences. It's vitally important to local community economies and as a whole is an important source of employment with a projection of over 15.7 million people projected to be employed by this industry sector in 2024. Now, the recently published report forecasts restaurant sales to exceed 1.1 trillion for 2024. And if that target's hit, this would be a new record. Restaurant operators are feeling optimistic with roughly 80% of restaurant tours predicting that their sales will increase by as much as 33% this year when compared to sales in 2023. One key change to the restaurant business model is that delivery, carryout, and drive-through, as opposed to in-restaurant dining, continues to be a core part of sales projections for 2024. 52% of consumers, which includes 67% of millennials, And 63% of Gen Zers say ordering takeout is not only desired, it's an essential part of their lifestyle. Now, to be clear, all is not rosy. The report makes the point that employment issues, supply chain issues, and the pressures on profitability due to continued inflation remain real and challenging. 45% of restaurant operators still need more employees. 70% have job openings that they haven't been able to fill. So overall, things looking up for the restaurant industry, no doubt, though, still challenging times ahead. I'm Jeff Sloan, founder and CEO of StartupNation.com.
the source for everything you need to start and grow your own business. And that's today's business beat on the great voice of the Great Lakes, WJR. Well, that'll get you going on a Monday. How about that? Uh, Serious topic, though. U.S. health officials are warning clinicians to be alert for cases of measles following several outbreaks. There was an email Thursday from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention urging vigilance among health care providers across the U.S. following reports of nearly two dozen cases of the preventable virus. Uh, the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services has confirmed the first case here of measles since 2019. Joining us now, Dr. Matthew Denenberg, Chief of Pediatrics at Corwell Health Children's in Southeast Michigan. Good morning, doctor. Good morning. So how concerned should parents be that there's this measles outbreak nationally and now there's a case here in Michigan? Well, I think I think parents need to be concerned because measles is, as you mentioned, very preventable but very contagious. About 90% of, of people that are exposed to somebody with measles have, have a chance of of contracting it. And I think we need to be worried because our vaccination rates are down. This case in, in Oakland County is an isolated case. It does not appear to have spread beyond the case, um, but there have been 24 cases, uh, I'm sorry, 35 cases nationwide in 2024 already. So this is something we really need to be concerned about. Dr. Dittenberg, are the vaccination rates down? Did they start you know, when COVID hit or were they down before COVID? How did that happen? Our vaccination rates were actually going up um, in the years before COVID. We were starting to reach levels in Michigan that were um, much better than they've been in years. And when COVID hit, it started a decline. We're starting to see them stabilize a little bit, but the vaccination rates are still down and we need to make sure kids are getting vaccinated. This is a this is almost 97% preventable. Uh, what about the situation in Florida and that, how do you contain it at one school and how was that not done there? The only way to con- the only way to contain measles to a, a local local outbreak or to a local area is is when they start seeing cases to make sure those cases are isolated. Those kids are not exposed or those those uh, uh, infected folks are not exposed to other people. Um, that's why we we tell people if, if you think your child has measles, if your child shows symptoms of measles, Make sure you call your doctor or call the hospital or call the the emergency department before you go in so that they can prepare for you to make sure that you're isolated. Now, I'm not saying if you're really sick, don't go to the ER like you normally would, but but just give people a heads up so they can prepare. So so the schools do the same thing. If they if a child has measles, they they try and contain it to that group by isolating those kids from, you know, they not they send them home, they keep them home, they keep them from uh, the general public. So the follow-up is, what are the symptoms of measles? Uh, like other illnesses, right? Runny nose, cough, congestion, red eyes, conjunctivitis. Um, they get tiny little spots in their mouth, which are called complex spots. That's, that's sort of the, the, the classic presentation. And then, of course, a red, raised, blotchy rash that starts on the face, goes to the trunk, spreads to the arms. That's, that's the classic rash. And usually start getting sick about 7 to 14 days after they've been exposed but you can start getting sick up to 21 days after being exposed. Doctor, was this case, did it come from here, or was it due to international travel? Well, I understand it was a it was a patient that came from outside of Detroit. I don't know the full details. Okay. They're outside of Oakland County. I don't know the full details. Okay. But it was not somebody from here. They had been traveling. Mm-hmm. And uh, when do you get vaccinated for measles? 
after your first birthday, and then and then you get with your um, um, booster uh, at two to five years. Okay. So you usually you, we we like kids to get as soon as they turn one for the part of the routine vaccinations to get measles vaccination. What, what if you're an adult and you've never had that vaccination? You need to get vaccinated. You need to get vaccinated. Okay, so you're vaccinated your for life. You're vaccinated for life once you get it. Okay. What's tough is when you started to talk about the uh, symptoms, initially it's the same symptoms for sort of everything. So you have to really be vigilant with your kids. Yes, you have to be vigilant. And, and it's those spots in the mouth and the rash. We, we really do have a hard time diagnosing measles um, until you get the rash. And I got to tell you, as somebody who's been practicing pediatric emergency medicine for almost 30 years, our newer and younger physicians have not seen measles. And so it's even harder because, you know, they're learning it from, a te- from looking at it in a textbook. Interesting. Are there any misconceptions, uh, Doc, that you deal with when it comes to measles and how it's transmitted that you deal with on a, on a regular basis? No, it's, it's spread like a lot of other viruses. It's spread in the air. It's, it's spread by human-to-human contact. Um, it can stay in an area for up to two hours after somebody who's had measles has left the area. So one of the reasons why it's so highly contagious. Uh, talk about the safety of this vaccine. Unsure why people wouldn't get their children vaccinated. That vaccines for, for measles and, and other routine vaccinations are extremely safe. They've been safe for decades. Um, there is no link, uh, even though there's conversation out there in the media, there's no link to autism. There's no link to um, other illnesses um, that uh, there's no chance of getting the measles from the measles vaccination. It's an attenuated vaccine. Um, I will say that I will make one note that um, pregnant patients uh, should not get the vaccine. They should get the vaccine as soon as as soon as their pregnancy is over or or obviously try and get vaccinated before you get pregnant. Just switching gears briefly. I mean, last year we were so scared for our baby to get RSV. Is that still out there and, and should we be vigilant? RSV season lasts usually through March or April. We're still seeing some, we're still seeing RSV cases. It has started to slow down um, already this season. Um, but yes, still be vigilant if your child's showing respiratory symptoms or signs of RSV and they're showing complications. You should connect with your doctor or um, you know, bring in the emergency room if they're very sick. Yeah, I mean, some people don't have a doctor, I, I guess. And so emergency room is, is another option? If your child's having trouble breathing, um, not acting right, not eating or drinking properly, yes, absolutely. Okay, well, so one case of measles right now, but stay vigilant, get your children vaccinated, get, if you're an adult, get yourself vaccinated. That's your message, doctor? Absolutely. All right. Thank you, Dr. Matthew Denenberg, Chief of Pediatrics at Corwell Health Children's in Southeast Michigan. We appreciate you. And I'll just keep you on speed dial for my own personal use, my 17-month-old. Anytime. Anytime. <laughs> thank you so much, doctor. Um, you know, that's good to know. Um, the vaccines during COVID, because of the COVID vaccine, a lot of people... Thought you know, all vaccines. Politicized it and yeah. thought, you know, but the MMR... Uh, vaccine has been around a long, long time. And so it, it's it's safe. You know, I know my kids were vaccinated. I'm vaccinated. and But if you haven't been vaccinated and you're uh, an adult uh, and you want to make sure that you don't come in contact with, yeah. with measles, it's probably best to get that vaccination. 
you know what? I take the advice of my pediatrician. I trust him. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he's like, these are what she needs right now. I'm like, great, let's do it. Now, when she gets vaccinated, it's, you know, a whole thing. She's very upset. Yeah, of course. (laughs) But it's worth it to protect her against these things, measles, what have you. Yeah, yeah. It it can be very dangerous. Listen, uh, you know, we had that um, outage, uh, the AT&T outage. Yes. Last week. Well, you know, uh, uh, AT&T announced this weekend it will issue credits to customers affected by that widespread wireless outage uh, last week, covering around 290 million people in the United States. The Dallas company uh, faced service restoration for about three quarters of its users after they awoke Thursday morning to connectivity issues. The outage lasting about 10 hours Finally resolved later that evening, AT&T attributed the disruption to a technical glitch, ruling out a cyber attack because that's the first thing people started thinking about, right? And in an effort to rectify the situation, the company promised affected customers a $5 per account credit within uh, two billing cycles. One spot. (laughs) And an automatic credit for the average cost of a full day of service. All right, there you go, AT&T customers. Coming up, uh, the Michigan primary is tomorrow. We're going to talk about it next. With the recent spectacle of Donald Trump's resounding win in South Carolina's Republican primary, the political landscape is ablaze with speculation and strategy. Trump's dominance in key contests has solidified his position as the frontrunner, while former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley finds herself grappling with the aftermath of a home state defeat. Now, the spotlight turns to Michigan where the next battleground awaits. Also, what are the ramifications of Trump's and Republican candidates' support for in vitro fertilization treatment? Let's bring into the conversation Jason Rowe. He is principal of Rowe Strategic and former executive director of the Michigan Republican Party. He joins us on the JR Morning Live line. Jason, good morning. Good morning, guys. How are you? Good. Let's start with the Trump win over Nikki Haley in her home state. She says she's staying in, but uh, you got a big donor, the Koch brothers. They say, listen, we're not funding her campaign anymore. What does this mean for her campaign moving forward? Well, I mean, she's had a, a serious, a series of significant losses. I mean, when you consider, you know, stepping back, she got third place in Iowa. In Nevada, she lost to none of these candidates. And now in her home state, she got crushed by 20 points and, you know, reportedly $8 million was spent on her behalf in, in South Carolina, while only 370000 was uh, spent on the Trump campaign, yet he won by over 20 points. So, I mean, the path forward for her doesn't look good, obviously. Um, she doesn't really have anything to point to uh, of any, you know, accomplishments so far in the process. And tomorrow in Michigan, she's going to, you know, lose by a pretty wide margin. And I I do think the Koch brothers and Americans for Prosperity pulling back is significant, Um, especially here in Michigan. They're a very strong organization in the state at the grassroots level and not having them to augment her campaign is a big blow and and going into Super Tuesday is going to be a big problem. Jason, why do you think she's staying in the race? The campaign is forging ahead when it doesn't seem there's even a path for her. She says it's because other states should have a choice and not just one candidate on their ballot. You know, I get asked that a lot and I hear a lot of conversations about it and no one seems to know. Um, hmm. uh, you know, I think there's kind of two scenarios from my um, standpoint, one being that if um something happens to Trump, whether it is, you know, legally or in some other form that that she's the last woman standing and who the party turns to is somebody who's remained in the race. Um, and maybe that 
you know, means at convention or sometime between now and then. Um, you know, I think one other potential scenario is, does Joe Biden remain on the ballot? I've said to you guys before, I remain skeptical that he will remain as the Democratic nominee and um, he's Trump's best opponent. If Trump's looking at his electability and if you replace him with a Gretchen Whitmer or a Gavin Newsom or a Kamala Harris, you know, uh, are Democrats in a better position and do uh, Republicans look to an alternative to Trump? These, you know, either of these scenarios are not likely, but they're certainly the only thing I can come up with that explains why she remains. You know, uh, Nikki Haley had um, uh, a rally uh, in uh, Troy yesterday. I think she's having another one today in uh, Grand Rapids. What is it that you think she can say that will resonate with Michigan voters, if anything? I I mean, I I don't think there's anything that's going to happen here that has uh, different from the other states. Uh-huh, in fact, yeah. I think the the margins here I expect to be wider than anywhere else, in part because no one even realizes there's an election tomorrow. I think, you know, we're going to have probably under 20 percent turnout on the Republican side. She's the only one running television ads. But just like in South Carolina, where she had a, you know, 20 to one spending advantage, you know, it didn't matter. And that was her home state. So I think you can expect Trump to win in Michigan by 30 or 40 or even 50 percent. And I, I think it undermines any credibility going into Super Tuesday for her. What do you think about the fallout from the Alabama IVF ruling? I mean, you have uh, Republicans coming out and saying, I fully support IVF. And for some, like Representative Byron Donalds on the Sunday shows, it's an about face for him. Well, I, I think, you know, a lot of folks are uh, pointing to legislation that, that never got passed in Congress that would um codify IVFs as as life. I think that was an unintended consequence of the legislation. Um I, I think what happened in Alabama, I mean I think Republican leaders from Speaker Johnson to Donald Trump across the board have said the Alabama legislature needs to fix that. People need to remember the Supreme Court is merely interpreting the law. And so this I think was an unintended consequence. It, it merely takes legislative action to correct, so it depends on how quickly the legislature uh, addresses it, and it'll be interesting to see if the Congress takes this up. Uh, now, Democrats are seizing on it. I think they're preemptively attacking Republicans who have never taken a position on this um, just as a political cudgel, but I think if Republicans move quickly to clarify, uh, that can mitigate the political fallout of of the uh, IVF ruling in Alabama. Yeah, and I was going to ask about that because it seems like they, the Republicans uh, need to come out strong for IVF. They took a bath basically on abortion, and they don't want to see that happen again and make this another a, a political issue in this upcoming election. Well, and it's, you know, it's not proven to be a winner. I, I would argue Republican candidates have not suffered over the abortion issue but ballot propositions have um, been very successful in codifying abortion rights. Um, but I think if you are a candidate um, who has an unpopular position on you know, the issue of abortion, being dragged into a conversation on that when you would rather be talking about economic issues or national security issues, um, you know, there's a lot going on that Republicans have big advantages on in the current political environment. And if they're dragged into talking about this, they're not talking about that. 
Um, Ukraine aid, the president is going to bring some leaders to the White House to try and get that passed, but some lawmakers want it to be tied to border security. And it's come home, at least for John James. We talked to a Ukraine uh, descendant who says that they're going to go rally at his office because he hasn't supported Ukraine aid. Yeah, it's interesting because, you know, I think Trump and, and some of the more isolationist elements of the Republican Party are prevailing over congressional action. But when you look out into public opinion surveys and where the American people are, they're still overwhelmingly in favor of uh, supporting Ukraine in this fight against Russia. Um, I think, you know, there's a lot of prominent um, figures on the right that continue to be very supportive of Ukraine funding. But, you know, this you know, is now being attached to border security. And I think the Biden administration has repeatedly misstepped on um, giving Republicans what they are asking for in terms of securing the border. The political liabilities that Biden has taken on are incomprehensible. I mean, immigration is now the number one issue in Michigan. It's the number one issue in America. And the administration continues to falter. We're, we're near 9 million people have entered the country illegally on Biden's watch. And why he just doesn't come to the table for his own good, let alone the security of our country, and meet Republicans halfway to get the Ukraine funding by securing the border is just beyond me. Got to ask you about, uh, before we get out of here, RNC head Ronald McDaniel, who's uh, going to be stepping down March 8th. Your thoughts on that? Uh, you know, listen, she she stayed a lot longer than most people do and, and not in a very fun period of time for the Republican Party or for the country. Um, I think a lot of people don't understand what the political party's jobs are, and I think Rana uh, has done the blocking and tackling that isn't very you know, sexy in terms of what happens in politics in America, but I think she was effective at doing it. It'll be interesting to see if uh, Trump has his way in choosing the next chair and co-chair, who uh, the co-chair re- recommendation he has is his daughter-in-law. Um, so that'll be pretty interesting. The the Republican National Committee is 168 members, three from every state and territory in the country. Um, they don't always go the way um, their leaders want them to. So it'll be interesting if they ratify Trump's choice or if they have their own uh, decisions about who they want to lead their body. Jason Rowe, principal of Rowe Strategic, former executive director of the Michigan Republican Party. We appreciate your time and your uh, information this morning. All right, guys, enjoy the sunshine today. You as well. And coming up at 749, the Salvation Army, Metro Detroit, the 37th annual Bed and Bread Club Radiothon raised $1.6 million to combat hunger and homelessness. We'll talk with Major Tony Durrell about the Radiothon and much more as JR Morning continues. In the heart of Metro Detroit, a beacon of hope shines brightly amidst the challenges of hunger and homelessness. The Salvation Army of Metro Detroit, steadfast in its commitment to serve the most vulnerable members of the community, recently concluded its 37th annual Bed and Bread Club Radiothon here on WJR with resounding success. The monumental fundraising event raising an astonishing $1.6 million. Let's talk more about that with Major Tony Dorrell, Metro Detroit Area Commander of the Salvation Army Great Lakes Division, who joins us on the JR Morning Live line. Major, good morning. Good morning. It was, let me tell you how wonderful it was to be there at headquarters in Southfield for the uh, 37th uh, annual Radiothon with the Salvation Army. 
and the people were great, and our listeners were even more wonderful, raising $1.6 million. Yeah, it was a great experience, wasn't it? It was uh, it's, it's really astounding to me when I even look back on it to, to look at all of the uh, time and effort and talent dedicated to this event. And um, we're so appreciative of WJR and, and all of the, the staff and the um, you know, just everyone there. It's just, and like you said, the donors, our listeners, um, it was just, uh, it was a beautiful day. And while we fell a little bit short of our goal, um, you know, just, just to see how um, people reached out through the phone lines, through the online portals to uh, help neighbors in need um, for this, such a, a critical service that we provide to the, to the, um, uh, residents of Detroit and and this you know this area. Talk about if you could, uh, Major, the uh, how the Bed and Bread program plays like this really <clears throat> crucial role in in combating hunger and homelessness. Yeah, our trucks go out um, like sixty stops, three trucks every day, between three and five thousand meals. And you think about that. Um, uh, when I've ridden on the truck, you you know you you pull up at a stop and and people are expecting you about that time or if you're late they'll let you know and uh, you know come out for a meal. Some folks are you know who you would think who you see on the streets are chronically homeless. Others are the the working poor who are just trying to make their paycheck stretch, you know from one week to the next. And when the truck pulls up with a healthy lunch. Um, they, you know, take advantage of that. And, you know, that's really what we're there for, to provide healthy meals, to provide that basic need for, uh, for folks who need it. And it's, it's the full gamut of, um, of folks reaching out for those services. And it's, you know, from, from uh, families who, you know, dads and moms who are coming to the truck to get food for their kids. Uh, and for themselves, because we don't leave them out either. But it's it's a it's such a blessing to be a part of um, of that frontline ministry. And our drivers are so um, they're they're so good with the the folks that come uh, up to receive a meal. But more than just handing out a meal, they're there to provide the next step of services. If uh, you know if somebody's ready to take that next step to get into a shelter to uh, you know, move towards um, sobriety in their life. Um, you know, our, our drivers are there, kind of the frontline outreach workers mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. to uh, to get those folks the next step towards uh, a better life. Uh, Major, I was on the bread truck, and then I was at my first radiothon, and just the uh, numbers were just astounding to me about how quickly money was being raised. And what really warmed my heart was the call-in, you know, little piece of paper they gave us to read, you know, Laura mm-hmm. from Shelby, 25 bucks, or, or Mike from yeah. Orion or whatever, 500 bucks. Like, whatever people could give, they were giving. <clears throat> yes, and, you know, it's a, it's a beautiful thing, and that, that really is how, how it works, right? So we have um, large sponsors who, who are able to give, um, you know, big amounts of money, more than most of us ever could. And then there are those who give the $5 or the $25. And it really does take all of us doing what we can. And um, you know, God uses all of that. He puts it all together and blesses it. And people are well served because of those donations. And we all get to be a part of it at whatever level we're able to. 
You know, Major, beyond the immediate impact of uh, providing the meals and you provide shelter as well, how does the uh, Salvation Army uh, address a lot of the root causes of, like, homelessness and hunger? Right. Well, you know, that that is the concern, right, because uh, this, this was our 37th annual Radiothon, and you'd like to say, well, how, how come in 37 years we haven't been able to fix this problem, right? But... Um, Truthfully, in, in the, this current economy, it's hard for everyone to make ends meet. And those who are uh, below the poverty level, which in Detroit is like 30%, more than 30% of the population, below poverty level. You think about that. How, how do you make ends meet when your ends don't meet to start with, mm-hmm. right? And then you're challenged with this current economy. And so... Um, you know, so that meal is important just just at that basic level, but it's also an introduction to other opportunities. So, like I said, if somebody is um, interested in taking that next step towards getting um, getting sober, getting clean, because there's a lot of, of drug use and alcohol mm-hmm. use, obviously, on the streets, uh, you know, and there's there's a debate, does does that cause someone to be homeless or is that how they survive homelessness, mm-hmm. you know, with their addictions? And you, you could argue it either way. And probably there's truth on both sides of that line. But, um, you know, our, our substance use treatment programs, our, um, you know, our ARC who does uh, also work in this area, um, our shelters, all of those stand ready to get people to that next step. And, and those are the success stories, right? And it takes people, I, I told a story um, about a woman I met on the truck last week. Her name is Jennifer. And um, Jennifer had been in and out of our substance use treatment programs at the Harbor Light n- numerous times. And when I met her last week, she had been clean and sober for uh, for over a year, had just moved into her apartment that she hadn't had, you know, hadn't had her own home for years. And she's just moved in and, and she's uh, in a great place in her life and has a good support system. But it takes people in addictions, you know, who, who have a good support system, uh, you know, it, it takes multiple tries sometimes to get clean. And when you, you, um, when you take a person who's, who's at poverty level, living on the streets, Without a support system, uh, those success stories are are uh, few and and far between. So the Jennifers, you know, you you have to celebrate the Jennifers who come out of that life and um, are on a new trajectory. And, and Major uh, Tony Dorrell, Metro Detroit Area Commander of the Salvation Army Great Lakes Division. Thank you so much. Doing the most good, as always, the Salvation Army does. And coming up, we'll have all the latest news of the day. And we'll be talking to Nolan Finley at 819. And we're back on JR Morning on this Monday morning. It's sunny. It's beautiful. It helps you start your week a little bit better when it's like that outside. It does. And uh, the temperatures, you know, going to be pretty good as well. 55 today. We're talking about 60 tomorrow. We might get some rain and stuff in here. But, you know, I can deal with 60s. Of course. I haven't been able to wear my cute winter outfits. But that's okay. I'll save them for next year. Um, Nikki Haley still sees the sun and and light in her campaign. Yeah, yeah. Former Detroit, uh, former Detroit, former President Donald Trump solidifying his position as a frontrunner for the Republican presidential nomination. He clinched a victory in South Carolina primary 
over the weekend, and his uh, triumph further narrows the options for his last major rival, Nikki Haley. Despite the setback, Haley remains resolute, vowing to press on with her bid for the presidency. Her defiant stance set the stage for a contentious battle as the GOP heads to Michigan for the primary tomorrow. Super Tuesday is looming. Trump aims to further solidify his nomination while Haley's team insists on forging ahead despite the odds as the political landscape intensifies. The clash between Trump's dominance and Haley's resilience underscores the high stakes of the Republican race. She's losing money, though, and this can't be. She still has this rosy disposition, but this is not good. The political network financed by billionaire Charles Koch announced Sunday it will no longer spend funds to support Nikki Haley's presidential bid. The group no longer believes it can make a meaningful difference for her in the race, senior advisor Emily Seidel said. Instead, Americans for Prosperity Action will focus its resources down the ballot on House and Senate races. So that's a blow. Well, the New York Times uh, says the Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer is finding herself navigating choppy waters as she faced backlash over the response to the the Israel-Hamas conflict. Initially slated to speak at a celebratory uh, event in Dearborn honoring a health clinic founded by Muslim leaders, Whitmer's plans were derailed. Her statements during the conflict left both Jewish and Arab-American community displeased. A subsequent announcement of her appearance in Dearborn sparked outrage on social media, and some labeled her as unwelcome in predominantly Arab-American cities, and activists accused her of supporting genocide, forcing Whitmer to cancel her speech. She says that's a move she later regretted. But as she grapples with the political firestorm, her role as President Biden's chief ambassador to Michigan adds another level of complexity with Arab Americans expressing frustration over Biden's stance on Israel and requesting voters to vote uncommitted in tomorrow's presidential primary. The governor finds herself in a precarious position. I just want to make the case, though, that it's important not to lose sight of the fact that any vote that's not cast for Joe Biden supports a second Trump term. A second Trump term would be devastating, not just on fundamental rights, not just on our democracy here at home, but also when it comes to foreign policy. This was a man who promoted a Muslim ban. Despite her popularity among moderate voters and suburbanites, Whitmer's ability to reconcile uh, factions within the Democratic Party remains uncertain. Yeah, a big part of that piece is can she deliver Michigan for Joe Biden in the upcoming general election? Yeah, and how much will the uncommitted vote mean to whether he wins or not? Right. Who does that take away from? Yes. Let's talk to Nolan Finley about that a little bit more. How about that at 819? Let's do that at 819, yes. All right. On a lighter note, let's talk about the Red Wings and how hot they are right now. They are hot. They have won five games in a row. Patrick Kane has been hot himself. He had his return to Chicago uh, yesterday. And think about a guy coming back, a playoff MVP who helped the Blackhawks to three Stanley Cups during his 15-plus seasons. Then he was traded in 2023 to the New York Rangers. So he returns. There was a video board. The sellout crowd gave him a standing ovation. Mm-hmm. They love him there. Chris Gelios, is number seven, actually was retired there. And he was like, Patrick Kane is one of the best American-born hockey players ever. So it was a lot of Patrick Kane love. Then the Red Wings, with him wearing a winged wheel jersey, shuts down the Blackhawks in overtime. It's amazing. Look out here. Look at this. Wide Look open. at this. Top center ice. It's Patrick Kane in Chicago. Oh, oh my God. Kane with the overtime winner. The Red Wings win it 3-2. The story is complete on Kane's return to Chicago. I love so that call. Ken Daniels' call. 
Mickey Redmond just going, oh, my God. (laughs) It was a breakaway to win in overtime. It doesn't get better than that. I mean, some guys just have it in big moments. Patrick Kane does. He has five goals and seven assists during an eight-game point streak. The Red Wings have won five in a row. They are in the playoffs if they started right now. They play Washington on Tuesday night at Little Caesars Arena. And uh, Michigan health officials have confirmed the first case of measles in four years detected in a child from Oakland County who tested positive for the illness. The Michigan Department of Health and Human Services announcing Friday that the case was linked to international travel. Collaborating with Oakland County authorities, the MDHHS is assessing the extent of the threat, but currently they believe no additional exposure beyond the household has occurred. And we spoke with uh, Dr. Matthew Denenberg, and if you want to uh, take a listen to that full uh, interview, uh, you can at WJR.com. Lloyd, the Mackinac Policy Conference, I'm looking forward to that as a WJR employee and going up there with the morning show and getting the scoop. Um, can I buy a chair? Uh, you know what? Those chairs on the porch. I love the chairs. You can rock in those chairs and you can just look at the iconic the, chairs you know, yeah, on the porch. Look at the water. Well, those iconic rocking chairs from its fame front porch are now up for sale. Available in classic black natural wood and crisp white. These chairs touted as the finest and most weatherproof globally mirror the ones gracing America's front porch. Um, the uh, measure they measure about 34 inches in depth, 27 inches in width. They stand about 48 inches tall. They can support up to 300 pounds, weighing in at only 37 pounds itself. Price? Yeah, how much? Six ninety nine. The for, chairs for can the chair? for the chair. Okay. The chairs can be complemented with a front porch side table for an additional 300. All right. Well, if you want that for your porch, yeah, you can go to the uh, Grand Hotel website and uh, get your piece of. Uh, Porch perfection. Um, there's this um, push now to ban storming the court. Have you seen that? I saw that. So there have been some incidents. So mm-hmm. Iowa women's basketball star Caitlin Clark collided on the court with an unidentified woman when Ohio State won. How about Duke's Kyle Filipowski injured Saturday as a wave of Wake Forest fans rushed their home court after the Demon Deacons 83-79 defeat over the Blue Devils, and now people are saying, this guy got hurt. This is a piece of the Duke, you know, court that is now hurt. This has got to change. People are tweeting about it. Filipowski posted on X after the game that this has got to change. Duke coach uh, called for the court storming to be banned, and Wake Forest coach Steve Forbes agreed. I mean, it can be dangerous for the players, especially on college courts. There's really no barrier. People just go on. And it can be dangerous for the players and also for the spectators who can get trampled, you know, while people are running out there and they can be hurt as well. Yeah. So there's this push now to ban storm courting or (laughs) court storming. (laughs) Hi, it's Monday. Um, Maybe we'll ask Tom Izzo about that. He's going to join us at 835. Tough loss for the Spartans at home. Uh, against Ohio State. This was like a definitely, it felt like a March game because Ohio State won at the last minute buzzer beater. Heartbreaker. And now they have to travel to number three Purdue on Saturday. So Coach Tom Izzo joins us at 835. All right. It is now 813 and coming up at 819, it'll be Nolan Finley. We have a lot to talk with him about. Nolan Finley, editor of the Detroit News. He's editorial page editor of the Detroit News. We'll have him and all the subjects we need to speak with him about coming up next as JR Morning continues. 
Well, this is exciting. You know, 50s and 60s this week. You're thinking golf maybe already. Well, you could win tickets to the Michigan Golf Show March 8th through the 10th and then qualify qualify for a Tullymore Resort Golf Package, and that's pretty great as well. A stay-and-play package for you and a guest, including a two-night stay at the resort and 18-hole rounds with a cart on both Tullymore and the Save St. Ives courses. So we're going to be giving this away before the end of this hour. Stay tuned for that. And in the tumultuous landscape of American politics, where every twist and turn can redefine the trajectory of an election, tomorrow's Michigan primary holds the promise of stirring up some unexpected chaos as former President uh, Trump solidifies his position as a frontrunner for the Republican presidential nomination. Pressure mounts on his last major rival, Nikki Haley to reassess the viability of her campaign. Meanwhile, Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer's recent remarks pushed back against calls to withhold support for Biden over his handling of the Israel-Gaza conflict. And it was two years ago that Russia invaded Ukraine. Let's get to all of these issues with Nolan Finley, editorial page editor of the Detroit News. And Nolan, good to talk with you again on a Monday. Good morning, Lloyd and Jamie. I hope everybody stocked up on their sunscreen. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we are loving the sunshine. Let's start with uh, Nikki Haley. So uh, she loses in her home state, and she says, listen, I'm going to continue. I'm a woman of my word. I'm going to continue. But the Koch brothers says, well, you're going to continue without our funds. Yeah, I mean, it's a shame. I mean, if you look at this, you know, just thinking about this this morning, uh, we entered this campaign with 70% of Americans saying they don't want a rematch between uh, Joe Biden and Donald Trump. And yet they keep going to the polls in these primaries and nominating Joe Biden and Donald Trump. I, I, I don't know what has to happen to change this dynamic. Well, in the next 10 days, 19 states and Washington, D.C. will vote. Uh, do you think yeah. there's any sort of. I don't know. Is there a path for her? For Nikki Haley, I don't think so. For one reason, many of those states have have done just exactly what Michigan has done, and that is rigged their process to make sure Donald Trump uh, gets their elect their their nomination in in these states. I mean, you look at what happened here. Tomorrow's vote for Republicans means very little because very few of the delegates, Republican delegates will be awarded in that primary vote. Most of the rest of them will be awarded on Saturday in in party-orchestrated caucuses. So it won't be the people deciding. It'll be a small uh, uh, cabal of the Republican Party deciding, and most of those are Trump loyalists. And speaking of caucuses, there'll be two this weekend. Uh, what do you say about that? <laughs> you know, it's just so... <laughs> it's just so typical of where we are in terms of our our politics today, particularly our Republican politics. Uh, uh, you know, you've got uh, now we 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 came into this with two Republican parties. Now we've got three. Uh, you've got the uh, anti-Trump faction, and then two pro-Trump factions that that uh, are are pitted against each other. Uh, it just shows you how, oh, you know, where this Republican Party in Michigan has come. Uh, they they can't even hold a a presidential nominating uh, process here. Yeah, and then we thought things were going to die down within the party when Hoekstra 
was, you know, nominated. And then President Trump said, yeah, okay, I recognize Hoekstra. But then Christina Caramo continues her fight. And, you know, some people continue to follow her. I think ultimately things will settle down under Pete Hoekstra. I think he's a guy who can uh, sort of get control of this uncontrollable party we've had in Michigan and perhaps bring some of the uh, Republicans back in who left during the chaotic period and took their money with them. And, you know, you had all these uh, these sort of usurpers out there uh, talking about mainstream Republicans and, and establishment Republicans. And, and, you know, it turns out those are the people who funded the party and, and supported the party with their, with their efforts. And with them gone, there's not much party left. And I think Pete has a chance of bringing this party together and making it a functional organization again, but I don't think it's going to happen in time for the fall election. This is a long-term process. Nolan, what does it mean uh, for uh, President Biden here in Michigan with the uncommitted vote that Rashida Tlaib has been asking uh, folks to do uh, in tomorrow's primary? Well, you know, I'm torn on this because I like the idea of expressing our frustration with the choices the parties have presented us, and I wish both parties would just hold withhold their votes. Uh, the reason, though, is, you know, it's not something... I can't can can support, and I'm afraid that if enough people vote uncommitted here, uh, it's going to perhaps erode the president's commitment to Israel, and I think that would be a very very bad outcome. Uh, Nolan, there's an editorial from you on the Detroit News talking about this uh, Whitmer right to bypass state board of education. We had a, yeah. a board of education member on last week saying that this is not right. All the money is being shifted to my leap. But you're saying maybe it is right. I'm not sure it's right, but I think it's a it's the uh, you know, I'm not sure it's constitutional, but I do think it's the right thing to do. Uh, this One of the reasons Michigan can't improve its education performance despite spending millions and tens of millions more uh, on education than than we did just a few years ago is because we have this crazy bifurcated system where the state elected state school board has control of education and the governor has control of education so there is no accountability Mm -hmm. uh, nobody to point a finger to and say hey this is your responsibility. This is your fault if it doesn't work. And I think uh, unless, you know, we haven't had the uh, the willingness to do a ballot proposal, a constitutional amendment to eliminate that elected school board. So I think, uh, you know, starving it of money is probably the best way to actually get meaningful reforms put in place. I mean, Rick Snyder did this uh, similar move when he moved the uh, reform office out of the state board of education and into his administration. So it's not unprecedented. And again, it may not be constitutional, but I think, you know, we got to do something here. Nolan, what effect will the uh, Alabama Supreme court IVF uh, ruling have on the, the GOP in this election? Well, I mean, as long as you keep abortion alive as an issue, it's going to work against the Republican party. Uh, you know, this should have been, this should have been settled in the, with with the Dobbs ruling, and you know the, the GOP just keeps stepping in it. 
Yeah, I mean, it has people fired up that weren't fired up before. I know a lot of people who are affected by fertility treatments. And you you wonder, you look at what's happened to the the GOP over the last few years, in Michigan particularly, but also other places. uh, They have not been able to exploit the dissatisfaction with democratic rule because um, because of the abortion issue. And uh, we had Jason Rowe earlier on talking about tomorrow's primary. It's not that many people are going to turn out for a primary, especially no. with early voting. Partic- no, particularly not this year. Uh, and, you know, the, it, a lot of people don't like to vote in these in this primary because you do have to declare yourself uh, you know, a, a Republican or a Democrat when you ask for the ballot. And a lot of people don't want to go on the record doing that. And, you know, I wish you could just uh, go in there and, and pick up a ballot with, you know, and, and make your, your choice in a in a private manner. Well, Nolan Finley, uh, editorial page editor for the Detroit News, we appreciate you every Monday giving us the uh, lowdown of what's going on across the state. And we will talk to you again next Monday. Look forward to it. All right. It, uh, coming up at 835, Tom Izzo will be joining us. The Spartans losing a heartbreaker at the buzzer, 60-57 against Ohio State. I don't State. think he'll be that sunny. Uh, we'll, we'll hope the sun. <laughs> I hope so. We'll hope the sun brings some sunniness to him. Also, we'll be joined by uh, our our own um, uh, Steve Courtney, our sports analyst. Steve Courtney will join us as well. That's coming right up at 835 here on JR Morning. The Spartans lost a heartbreaker at the buzzer, 60-57 to against Ohio State. It, the high note was Xavier Booker's first start, the freshman. Now it gets really tough. Number three, Purdue on Saturday on the road. As always, let's bring in head coach Tom Izzo and WJR sports analyst Steve Courtney. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning, Jamie. Hello again, everyone. This conversation with Magnum TI brought to you by the Performance Remodeling Sweepstakes. Performance Remodeling, a preferred partner of the Inside Outside Guys, kicked off another $100,000 window of opportunity sweepstakes. Request your Windows Roofing and Siding quote today. Log into windowsroofingsiding.com to enter the performance remodeling sweepstakes indeed opportunity escapes our spartans once again at the beautiful breslin center yesterday afternoon our spartans up by 12 11 05 to play you're thinking okay here we go they'll go for the jugular and this thing's put away there was uh, not the case a power outage the spartans were scored just seven points the rest of the way meanwhile the ohio state buckeyes a team certainly struggling on the road would close with a 22-7 run, including the Hail Mary from Dale Bonner to win it. Let's talk about it. Coach, how are you this morning? Well, I've been better, as you can imagine. but uh, Certainly. Um, you know, yeah, our offense just, uh, you know, I mean, I uh, can't tell you how many good shots I thought Tyson had, a couple that Jaden had, but two shooters go five for 24, and it's uh, just hard to – Adam, but uh, um, we did not play as well. And uh, as you say, we had 10, 12 point lead and and still weren't playing great then, but uh, we did not finish the job. And I know the uh, basketball gods got us. You know, we missed a free throw and then they hit one that I'm not sure you'd hit very often, but uh, that's kind of what happened. Uh, Coach, what what changed for MSU defensively in, in the second half? Well, uh, 
that's one of the reasons it was they they were hurting us on the offensive boards and you know you trade things you know uh, book played really well but he still not strong enough to you know muddy rebounds better and uh, so we were getting beat on the offensive boards and that's where they were making some plays I mean they had made three threes for the day until they made their or two for the day until they made their last one. Um, but one player inside hurt us a little bit, and uh, I think that was uh, the difference as far as the uh, the game. I mean, still for the game, I, I don't know exactly. I uh, don't have it in front of me. I think they shot uh, 40. No, they shot 37% and 17 from the three. You should win uh, every one of those games times two, and we uh, – so defensively, it wasn't as good the second half, but it was the missed shots that doomed us. Uh, I, I feel like it was a microcosm for the whole game when Tyson Walker's at the line and then the ball gets stuck. That doesn't happen to him often. No, I've never seen a free throw get stuck. You know, uh, you're right. It was a microcosm. Uh, Ty had a tough game and uh, just uh, couldn't get going. But... Uh, Really had some good shots and shots he normally makes and just didn't make them. And, uh, you know, that's the problem with our game. And uh, and yet we all got to do a better job. There's just no excuse for that. Was it just an off night for Tyson, uh, Coach, or was he just being defended pretty well? Uh, you know, a little bit of both. I mean, I think that's frustrating for him to realize that when you get the rank of being the best player, there's – you know, a responsibility that goes with that. And, and there's a defense that goes with that, you know, and that have been on the second page of the report, you're on the first page of the report. And so I think they did a decent job. But if you watch the second half, boy, we had three wide open threes, probably shots he's made in his sleep and it just didn't go in this time. And, uh, but we had nobody played great. And, uh, you know, and we've, uh, Got to figure out how to fix it. That's all. Coach, once again, uh, the rebounding bugaboo comes into play here. We've had our conversations throughout this season. Out rebounded uh, yesterday, thirty-nine, thirty-three. As a matter of fact, Ohio State with thirteen offensive boards. I know uh, that's about as irritating as it gets for you. Yeah, that's one of the problems. You know, we put different lineups in there, we get different results. And- on the boards, we're not the strongest team or biggest team that I've had. And, um, you know, we just did not get enough rebounding out of some key people. But uh, in saying that, uh, you still make some shots and you, you win easy. I mean, uh, you know, as I told you, them making that last one, they were 3 for 17 from the 3. The problem is we were 4 for 16. And uh, they hurt us a little bit at the line, and the offensive rebounding at thirteen to eight was was a big difference. And that's one of the things that happened in the second half. They just got more offensive boards that uh, you usually score in those. Uh, Coach, you haven't lost two in a row at home in a very long time, and then it doesn't get any easier when you hit the road on Saturday against Purdue. Yeah, we got to look at that as an opportunity. You know, get back in the human race and. You're right, tough place to play, and they don't lose at home. But I don't remember the last time I lost two in a row in the conference at home. It had to be 20 years. And uh, it's just one of those things. And, 
you know, I can't dwell on it. I've got to move forward, but I, today will be a good learning day. And of all things, you know, this is the one week where we get five days off, uh, which is normally good because uh, we've had a tough schedule of games, but uh, it's also spring break here. So it's almost too much time in a way, you know, but we're going to find a way to try to fix the problems and watch some film and, you know, spend our days uh, getting back on track. And that's what we'll do, Jamie. Uh, when you take a look at uh, Xavier Booker's line coach uh, making his first collegiate start, seven points, to go along with three boards, but he also had three blocks. Uh, he left with 15-10 to play, were up 10 points, and uh, he didn't uh, see the floor again, Tom. And I'm just curious, was he uh, was he hurt? Uh, what was no, the story? No, no, I mean, You know, that's, that was part of the rebounding issues. But, uh, you know, we're trying to bring him along, and everybody will think because he did certain things, you know, but not not playing him because he's uh, did anything wrong. He's it just, uh, you know, you, you go down the stretch, you figure your veterans will come through and do the things they got to do, and we didn't. So, um, you know, we'll adjust and we'll make, uh, we'll look at ourselves, we'll look at them. But, you know, when people wonder why he wasn't playing earlier, I mean, you could ask him, he just wasn't ready. And uh, the last couple of weeks, he's played better and better, he's practiced better and better. And, and uh, you know, there were times he really did do a good job. There were times that pushed around a little bit. That'll be part of the, you know, getting them stronger. The reason we started him, he was going against a center here that wasn't as physical as most are in our league. And we thought it would be a good chance to get him that opportunity. And it was a good chance. And it'll bold well down the, you know, the stretch and into next year. Well, you know, the calendar changes to March and it's usually historically January, February, Izzo. So things will turn around quick. Well, I don't turn around because it's March. They turn around because you earned the uh, right. And, um, you know, I, I am a little disappointed in our upperclassmen and, and probably, you know, the veterans, which is the coach and the players, have to do a better job, not the rookies. So uh, all the veteran people, which includes me, have to uh, you know, kind of check their whole card and figure out what we're doing. And, uh, you know, we've been good enough to play with everybody. And uh, and yet these two losses were after beating, you know, Penn State on the road. They had won three out of four. And uh, I don't know who before that, but we were really playing pretty well. You know, we beat Illinois here. We beat Michigan on the road. And then to lose two home games uh, with an incredible crowd here. The, the fans, you know, even though the students were gone, um, but uh, there wasn't an empty seat in the house. And... Uh, so I feel like I let those people down too. So there's, there's uh, some blame to go around, but it sure wasn't to our fans. And, uh, we're going to have to uh, try to make up for that. Well, you know, you see it as an opportunity on Saturday against number three Purdue on the road. Let's hope the players see it that way as well. Coach Tom Izzo, we appreciate you and you too, Steve Courtney. Thanks, guys. You could hear it in his voice. Yeah. He's feeling very down about these home losses that when you looked at the schedule, you'd think they would be wins. So hopefully they can create some magic at Purdue on Saturday. Uh, coming up, we're going to talk about um, some interesting things with Fox News radio correspondent Eben Brown. That's next on JR Morning Plus. We're going to give away those golf 
uh, tickets and things like that. That's next. This is exciting. Be caller 9 at 1-800-859-0WJR. That's 1-800-859-0957 to win four tickets to the Michigan Golf Show. Returning to Suburban Collection Showplace in Novi, March 8th through the 10th. Plus, you'll qualify for the grand prize, a Tullymore Resort stay-and-play package for you and a guest, including a two-night stay at the resort and 18 whole rounds with a cart on both Tullymore and St. Ives so make sure you call in for that. All right. And for the first time in a half century, an American-built spacecraft has landed on the moon. The robotic lander, the first U.S. vehicle on the moon since Apollo 17. And that was back in 1972. Let's get more now from Evan Brown. He's Fox News radio correspondent and WJR contributor. Evan, good morning. Good morning. So talk about the 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 uh, ship, the spacecraft itself, and the, the reason why we needed to uh, land on the moon again. Certainly. Well, Odysseus, as it's called, is uh, was built by a Texas-based company called Intuitive Machines. It is a science vessel, if you will. Uh, it's not crude. It's just a, a lander that has brought science experiments to be performed on the surface of the moon robotically. Uh, now, uh, why is this a big deal? One, because the United States company was able to make this happen and to bring a, uh, a spacecraft to a soft landing and, and to see a functional spacecraft on the surface of the moon. This is very difficult to do. Few entities around the, the globe have been able to do it. It's the first time, as you mentioned, the first uh, American-made object in 50 years. Uh, but it's also the first time a, a privately created and operated uh, spacecraft has been successfully able to reach the moon. There have been other attempts. They have uh, ended in failure. They've uh, crashed onto the moon's surface as opposed to landing. Um, but this this is being uh, uh, chalked up as a certainly as a success, even though after landing, for some reason or another, uh, the, uh, the lander tipped over and is now horizontal, which it's not supposed to be. But um, it can still do, uh, or at least we're being told, it can still do what it's intending to do. Um, so that's a success. You know, sometimes things aren't always perfect. It's, mm-hmm. It is space after all. What, what now, are the, the other thing, go ahead. I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, what, what, is, what are they hoping this will lead to in the future? Well, th- this is part of a, uh, a big, uh, bigger thing, if you will. Uh, President Trump, when he was in office, uh, started what was called the Artemis uh, Program which was to uh, return uh, astronauts to the surface of the moon. And this was going to be accomplished by uh, engaging the private sector to do what NASA really already knows how to do, but uh, the private sector can do it at much more affordable rates, uh, often with the technology that NASA developed and with the the talent that NASA developed. A lot of the NASA talent, uh, the people who left NASA, went to these private aerospace companies to help jumpstart uh, this amazing industry of, of private uh, space travel uh, and space transport. Um, so uh, with that being said, uh, this is an early example of the private sector being engaged by NASA to get something to the moon and to do it successfully. Um, eventually, in a couple of years, we'll see the first spacecraft uh, deliver uh, uh, astronauts back to the surface of the moon. Uh, and this will again be done in co- in corroboration with the private sector. There's going to be the building of a uh, a lunar base, and not to mention the Lunar Gateway Space Station, which will orbit the moon, which will serve as a uh, a launching point for even deeper space missions. So uh, th- this is that project kind of coming along. There's been a little bit of delay here and there, 
but uh, but ultimately, by engaging the private sector, we've seen this thing move at a much faster clip. Eben, so it's horizontal. <laughs> what does that mean for their research or pictures or what have you? Well, as, as so far as we've been told, they believe they can still get the research done that they want to get done. Um, and that's uh, so that's good. So that means they plan for contingencies. Uh, you know, like I said, not everything goes always perfect when you send something to the moon. It's a very, very difficult thing to do. Uh, and uh, this is still being touted as a success. So exactly how successful, to what degree of success or percentage, I guess we'll, we'll find out eventually. But the fact that they did soft land on the moon uh, is a big accomplishment and uh, that the device is, in fact, working. That's another accomplishment. It tipped over for some reason. There may have been a problem with one of the landing legs. Maybe where they landed was a bit softer than they thought it would be, uh, and that caused the you know it to tip over. Don't really know that yet. We may have an answer in the future, but um, this is still a success. So NASA paid Intuitive Machines $118 million under this program uh, known as Commercial Lunar Payload Services, so it would have cost them much more had they done it themselves, what you're saying. If NASA had to try to essentially redesign the wheel, right, build another, you know, redesign a spacecraft, build it, test it, so on and so forth, on its own, it would have cost us taxpayers a lot more money. Uh, this is something that was developed by the private sector at, at their ability to do things at their pace with their own uh, policies and procedures, uh, as opposed to a government entity, which has to bid things out and get the lowest bidder and all that stuff. Um, and, uh, uh, and so they're still able to, to make NASA specs and achieve NASA safety ratings and so on and so forth, but to do it at a fraction of a cost. All right, Evan Brown, Fox News radio correspondent and WJR contributor. We appreciate you giving us that information. You got it. All right, talk to you soon. Uh, you know, uh, going up in space, you know, something that uh, I would like to do simulating. Some, uh, in a, a simulator. simulator. <laughs> I was going to make a joke. Was he calling from the moon? <laughs> His connection was bad. <laughs> Poor Evan. Yeah, yeah um, but um, yeah, that's uh, that's a great um, accomplishment, and we hope that uh, more Look, great things. If it spawns things. more innovation exactly. and stuff, that would only be a good thing. Absolutely. I uh, just want to bring this up at this weekend's uh, Conservative Political Action Conference near Washington, D.C. Attendees found themselves divided over who they believe should be Donald Trump's running mate in the next presidential race. Results from a straw poll revealed a deadlock between South Dakota Governor Kristi Noem and former presidential contender Vivek Ramaswamy, each capturing 15% of the vote. Surprisingly, former Hawaii Representative Tulsi Gabbard secured third place with 9% support. Gabbard, known for her political journey from left to right, praised Trump as a fighter during the KPAC speech. New York Representative Elise Stefanik and South Carolina Senator Tim Scott tied for fourth place, followed closely by Representative Byron Donalds. And in a separate poll, 94% of KPAC attendees favored Trump over Nikki Haley as the GOP presidential candidate, despite Haley's determination to remain in the race. Well, ultimately, it's Trump's decision, right? And ultimately, it is. And tomorrow is our primary. So make sure if you, you get haven't already. That's right. Go out and vote. And uh, not a lot of turnout, probably. But, you know, your vote matters. Get out there. It does. And we want you to make sure that you exercise your right to vote. However you vote, it is up to you. Uh, Guy is off. He'll be off tomorrow. It'll be me and Jamie back here again. Can't wait, Lloyd. JR Morning. And coming up at 9, I'll talk with the fellas. And we'll be back tomorrow morning at 6. Take care.